Okay, so how is everybody today? It was a, looks like um, this may be the last of the snow, hopefully. And I think we're pretty much at our full complement, or almost full complement for today, so I'm going to get started. We do today have our changer back, so that's some good news in the face of all of the confusion with the strike. In terms of updating you with the strike, um, I do not know at the moment of any updates. As far as, I'm cons as, as I know, uh, everything is pretty much the same. The strike will go on unless we're all basically informed otherwise. Um, in terms of drop dates for this particular course, I know that Senate had voted last week to extend the drop dates for the winter term. As far as I know, the new drop dates have not yet been released. Uh, I will be keeping track of this, and as soon as I hear what the drop date is for the winter term courses, I'll post an announcement on Moodle and let everybody know those revised dates. Okay. All right. So today we're going to do a quick review of colors, the colors of flowers that we talked about last time, and the genetics, basic genetics uh, with respect to colors in flowers and colors in nature. In terms of new material today, we're going to get into minerals and into gemstones and a little bit into metals, which have some very, very interesting properties aside from being very reflective and refractive in the sense that the light coming from metals, you notice that metals always shine. We'll look at why that is today and a number of different characteristics, including characteristics in minerals and gems which give them their unique colors. There's a couple of videos I'd like to show you today. One is a segment, it's about a five minute segment of a longer video which is an hour long, which I'm not going to show in class, but you will have the link. So I encourage you, if it piques your interest, to, if you have uh, an hour to spare, to please check out that video. It's an excellent documentary about minerals. So a couple announcements. I think probably most of you here have written the midterm, but for anybody here or for anybody listening at home, your makeup midterm is tomorrow. That's March 15. And that will be if you arrive at 3.30 p.m. in Curtis Lecture Hall B. Um, you'll be checked in. This is going to be a spe special session for all of the Nats classes. So if you go and you don't see anybody you recognize or you see that the room is quite crowded, you can expect that. All the Nats makeup midterms will be at this time. And just to remind you, the makeup is for those of you who've missed with valid reasons for your absence. It's not if you didn't like your mark, you get to write a makeup. So bring your ID, uh, and you know the drill for that. In terms of assignment three, I had previously planned to release the assignment today. So for everybody who's keen to move on and get your marks all together, 
I will be, sorry for the slight delay, but I will be releasing that probably at the beginning of next week. Um, I'll most likely post a video on it if I don't get a chance to do it by Friday, but uh, your assignment three will be there, and that will conclude, aside from your exam, all of the coursework that you have to do for this course. And assignment two, again with the strike situation, I appreciate everybody's patience. Your assignment twos are being marked. Um, I'm doing some of them and the TAs who have elected to work are doing some of them. So those marks should be to you as quickly as possible. Right, if you haven't handed it in yet, that's fine because tip the date is the 15th, right? Or the, sorry, the 16th was the recommended date. So I know a lot of you have handed it in, but if you haven't, that's fine. You'll still be getting everything marked and, and uh, returned as quickly as possible. And just remember with the handing it in, I'd encourage you to hand this in, get it over and done with, clear your plate for studying for exams or whatever other coursework in other courses that you have to do. Um, but that said, it is not mandatory that you hand anything in during this period that we're still in flux with the strike. You will not be penalized for anything that you miss during this strike period. Um, a number of you have probably seen those posters that say, you don't have to be here. Well, that's true. You don't have to be here. But if you're wanting to be somewhere else for the summer, it probably is in your best interests to be here. So if you want to continue and push ahead, that's an option as well. Um, when I get some more direction in terms of final exams, what I think is going to happen, as I said last time, is that I will offer the regular exam during the regular exam period, so April 17. And those of you who wish to write then can do so. Uh, and then probably given the length of time the strike has already gone on, classes will be extended and an exam period will be pushed back. So for those of you who don't want to write on the 17th, you can elect to write in the later exam period. Any questions about that? Okay. All right. So we'll get on. We'll start actually first by a clicker question. So just to remind you with the participation marks, uh, I've reduced it from 80% to 70%. So if you get 70, answer 70% 70 of the questions throughout the whole class, including from now to the end of the class, you can get your full participation mark. All right, so let's start with a question to review last session's uh, So colors and flowers are important not only to their aesthetic beauty, but also to their lifespan in a flower-by-flower -flower basis, their survival of the species, uh, to their aromas, their aromatic emissions, to the genetic integrity of the flower, or to their permeability.
Okay. I'll stop this now. And the answer is B, to their survival. Because if you remember last time we talked about color in flowers having uh, co-evolved along with their pollinators. So basically bees, birds, the things that are pollinating the flowers that are responsible for the ensuring the survival of the species are uh, co-evolving with the colors. The color attracts them and it's also in the range of the electromagnetic spectrum that they can see. So the color in flowers, as we said, key to the floral species survival. And this is the survival mechanism, the attractiveness by which it attracts pollinators, um, and the coevolution basically happened in sync with one another. So I think that's pretty straightforward. We're going to have a couple questions. Today we'll just do the review as a series of, of questions. So next question. The two main pigments that color most flowers are. Okay. So is, are the two main pigments coloring flowers melanins and flavonoids, anthocyanin and cyanins and ethylene glycol, carotenoids and cadmium sulfate, sulfites, melanins and carotenoids or anthocyanins and carotenoids. That's a mouthful for an early morning course. Okay, the numbers are evening out here. All right, two more seconds. And the answer for this one is the main ones that we're talking about are anthocyanins, and carotenoids. So to review very briefly, when we see flower colors, we're obviously talking about the petals of the flowers, not the leaves of the flowers, which are green due to chlorophyll. And uh, there's three main pigments, but two that we're really concerned about for the course. So the three main pigments are the anth anthocyanin, flavones, or the flavonoids, and the carotenoids. And the anthocyanins and the carotenes or carotenoids are the ones that we particularly care about. Uh, remember also, though, that with flower, you'll see flowers, you'll see a number of variations of color. And the color of the flower also depends on a number of other factors, aside from just which pigment substances are present. So it can depend on the pH in the petal. It can depend on also the cellular structure of the flower petal. So flowers often, um, in any kind of plant cell, you have a cell wall and you have organelles within the cell. 
And one of these organelles is a large sort of a bubble called a vacuole. And the vacuole is there to store both waste products and also food for sustenance for the plant. And what is actually in the vacuole can often change the color of the flower. So this is an important, important thing to remember. When we're talking about the microscopic level as well with vacuoles, another thing that can change the color of the flower would be the actual shape of the cells. Okay. So in terms of those anthocyanins, let us see if we can recall the same anthocyanins that turn roses this color also turn cornflowers this color. Oh, sorry, one moment. Did not work. So is it pink and orange, red, also turns cornflowers red, yellow, blue, red, blue, or pink and red? just about got everybody. And as it was slowly inching up, as you can probably suspect already, the answer is <coughs> red and blue. So the anthocyanins that turn roses red also turn cornflowers blue, which raises an important point that a certain pigment in a different material will not always turn that material the same color. And this is something we're actually going to see later on with gemstones and minerals today, that you can have the same type of pigment responsible chemical compound in a certain mineral, and yet you could have a completely different color. And we'll talk about why that is in a moment. So just to recap, Remember the cornflowers, typically cornflowers are a beautiful blue color, which is still rare in nature. However, this is uh, a, one of the rare natural pigments that's actually blue and not due to structural changes. Uh, so typically the anthocyanin that turns this blue color also turns a rose red. Just to continue with our flower review by question. Spotted or patterned color patches on flowers are most often a result of which of the following? Okay. 
So are these spotted color patches on the flowers, is that a result of genes being switched on or off in the flower? Is it due to temperature variation? Because we already know that temperature and color are related. Uh, is it contamination in the flower, sort of insects, or microscopic rips and tears in the petals themselves? about three more seconds. And yes, the answer is A. These spotted patterns, or the dots on the flowers, are the genes in that area actually being switched on or off, activated or deactivated, which gives us this nice sort of spotted or patterned colors in flowers. So this was the picture that we saw last time. This was a mimulus flower or a monkey flower, uh, which just showed you clearly you can see these regions here in the flower where genes are directed on or off for darker or lighter colors. And uh, basically the pigments, any sign, any time that the color of a flower is influenced by a gene or due to a gene being turned on and off, you'll know that because it's highly localized. It'll be in a very, very small area. So that is your clue that it's a, it's a genetic color cue. But now getting into genes a little bit, which is where we finished off last time, I showed you a picture of, uh, of genes in the human body. And this picture here on the right, what's it called? So is this called a, a genotype, a phenotype, a karyotype, a daguerreotype, or a chromotype? It's a little bit of a closer race this time. Okay, last answers in. So for this one, actually the answer is C. This is a karyotype, and probably what was confusing was that we did talk last time about genotypes and phenotypes. Those are different things though. The karyotype, the name looks a little bit funny, because I don't know, it looks like karaoke or something, but karyotype is, <laughs> in any case, um, what you call basically the blueprint or the picture of 
the human genome, basically. So you have 23 pairs of chromosomes. 22 of those are identical in male and females, and one is different. So let's, let's see in a moment if you remember what that one is called. But just so you know, we'll talk about what genotype, recap what genotype and phenotype mean in one moment. So in terms of these chromosomes that you just saw in the karyotype picture, human beings have so many pairs of chromosomes, but only one of these pairs of chromosomes differ in males and in females. The pair is comprised of what's known as the something chromosomes. So do we have 46 chromosomes and it's the differential chromosomes, 23 in the sex chromosomes, 23 in the gender chromosomes, 22 and 21. Of course, as usual, nomenclature is not terribly important. You know, you, you just something that's called one thing could often just as easily be called another thing. But in this case, it's important for you to understand what we are talking about and also to, to know the lingo, so to be a bit conversant. So I think this one is pretty obvious. Let's see, let's stop. And it is uh, 23. Human beings have 23 chromosomes, 22 of those are called autosomes, and the 23rd are the sex chromosomes which differentiate between a human being being male or female, female being XX, male being XY. So to just review again our chromosomes. When we're thinking about chromosomes and, and kind of picturing what these are, you can imagine a strand of DNA wrapped up very, very, very tightly into a small package. So our chromosomes are basically the DNA molecule wound many times tightly in the same way that your small intestine is wound around to fit into your body. So these are the DNA molecules packaged into a thread-like structure and the nucleus of each cell. So the 22 pairs are called the autosomes, the 23rd as we just had is the sex chromosome. And what are the genes then? If these are the chromosome, what are the genes? So genes essentially are these string-like sequences contained on parts of the chromosome. If you think of the chromosome of being a long strand of the DNA molecule, certain areas that you can isolate in it, those are our genes. And our genes, of course, can tell us um, a number of characteristics of the organism that's going to be formed from those genes. And of course, we already know from mapping the human genome a number of inherited traits or congenital traits. In terms of congenital traits and predicting, what possibilities an organism could have, we use something called a Punnett square. 
I was just looking to see if I put a blank there, but there's already enough blanks in this one. So Punnett squares, okay, this picture over here, are genetic diagrams showing us all possible genotypes resulting from parent organisms with certain something. Dominant alleles are represented as some kind of letters, whereas recessive alleles are represented as this kind of letters. So as a reminder, if you get questions like this on the exam, I am going to try, try to, I did believe that the midterm was straightforward, but it appears maybe it wasn't as straightforward as I had anticipated. So I am going to try and make the questions very, very, very clear on the exam. But if you see things like this, typically take your time, really read through each sentence and take the time to read mentally each word in the space provided. Okay, stopping this now. So let's look at this square again. So these are all the possible genotypes of the offspring, but these particular things over here are the genotypes of the parents. The dominant alleles are in capital letters, like this big Y, and the recessive alleles are the lowercase or the small letters, like the green small Ys. So the answer for that one is actually A. It's easy to confuse. It's easy to confuse genotype and phenotype. So I didn't dwell a lot on phenotypes, but genotypes, remember, are the symbol designation. So for each characteristic or each trait that you may inherit, as in this diagram you have Ys, the Ys that are capital Ys and small Ys, these are called the alleles. This particular Punnett square was showing you the possibility of P offspring in uh, parent organism peas that are yellow peas and green peas. Okay. So the Y is the, is the yellow allele, whereas the genotype of both the parents and the offspring are these two, one from each parent, these two alleles put together. So the capital Y and the small Y, or both small Ys, etc. That's genotype. Anybody remember what phenotype is or what it refers to? Think of the word phenomenon. So phenotype tells you, based on the genotype, what visible trait you manifest. So for instance, if you have a phenomenon, a phenomenon shows you something. So in the case of this, the genotype would be YY, 
the phenotype would be whether the pea ends up being green or whether it ends up being yellow. And so the same was true when we saw the dominant and recessive iris-colored genes. So capital B was a dominant gene for brown eyes, dominant allele for brown eyes, whereas the small b was blue eyes. And again, the genotype might be little b, little b, but the phenotype then is what we see. So the phenotype in that case is blue eyes. So we did talk quite a bit about recessive and dominant genes last time. As you saw, the dominants are represented with alleles with capital letters, recessive or small letters. Uh, one of each, sorry, one allele in any genotype comes from one of each parent, and they can be dominant or recessive. But in order for the recessive phenotype, so in our example, blue eyes, the BB, to prevail, both alleles have to be those small b. So recessive genes will only manifest into a characteristic that you see, like blue eyes, if both parents have recessive genes, and that goes into the making of the offspring. Okay. I think that's good. So also, a couple of terms to remember are the terms heterozygous and homozygous. So heterozygous is when you have, yes, yes, always, yes, so, yeah, genotypes are always, they're always going to be a pair of two alleles, one from the father, one from the mother. Um, all right, so heterozygous is when both of them are different, so like with big B or little b. Homozygous is when both alleles are the same. So big B, big B, or small b, small b. All right, so that brings us, that's the, uh, you can relax for a little bit. That's enough questions for now. And we're going to move on now to talking about metals, minerals, and gemstones. Uh, as you can see from these pictures, the lower picture is showing you, illustrating a number of different types of metals, which show you really clearly that there are a number of colored sheens to different types of metal. Specifically, the adamantine has a green kind of a color. And gold, of course, as is very familiar to us, yellow gold has that bright sort of yellowish rich shade to it. So why is that? And if we can figure out why that is, given that metals are so shiny, does that have any relationship to minerals and gemstones, which are also very shiny? And the answer turns out to be yes. So let's see why. So just to review, we had, we talked quite a lot, we you know, sort of did the chemistry of color in quite a great bit of detail. And in terms of color, we talked about combinations of molecules all the time. So when we talked about chemical bonds, we talked about covalent bonds, ionic bonds. 
And these were two atoms, two or more atoms, coming together and sharing electrons. So if you remember specifically with respect to what we talked about with bonding, the colorants we've discussed, which have been dyes, pigments, paints, uh, all of these, and glass as well, are made of molecules. So when you did your dye essay, you were discussing the dye molecule. We're going to move on from discussing the dye molecule into something else, which is discussing in a different way how different atoms combine and form different combinations than those we've already seen. So just recall though that molecules are these collections of atoms with the bonded electrons. And as you see from the picture, just recall the covalent bonds are electrons that are shared between atoms, whereas the ionic bonds are an electron exchanged. So an electron given by one atom and taken by the other atom. And in both of these cases, covalent and ionic, regardless of the fact that one is together and shared and one is exchanged, the two atoms that were doing the bonding originally retained some sort of bond given that they share that electron. So let's look at something different. What about bonding in metals? Bonding in metals is really interesting. And it kind of looks like this. So we had our previous illustration with the covalent bonds of the atoms sort of touching the ionic where the atoms separated. In metals, something totally different happens. And what happens is this. You see basically a collection of atoms in this area here. The large sort of plus in the center of those circles, that represents the atomic nucleus, which has the protons and the neutrons. Now, of course, we've discussed the Bohr model of the atom quite a bit in this course. So the electrons are orbiting. You can think of still in terms of orbitals, orbiting the atomic nuclei. Now, instead of having one or two shared between specific atoms, in a metal, metals have communal sharing. So these electrons are essentially whizzing around very quickly and flowing very freely in such a way as to have a kind of a sea of electrons. No one electron belongs to one or two atoms. They are shared communally. Typical characteristic of a metal, before we go uh, on one slide, is that a metal tends to be solid or hard in its normal natural state, unless it's heated, of course. Uh, it's also shiny, and we'll see why. It's ductile, meaning if you stretch it or you bend it, it doesn't break. And it's malleable. So malleable means if you had a mallet or a hammer and you hit it, uh, you can actually thin a metal out to a layer that's just microns thick. And basically, when you're looking at a lot of sort of older art and older decoration, even some of the beautiful documents, uh, antiquarian documents that were preserved, you'll see they're decorated with gold foil, gold leaf. And gold leaf is just gold pounded down to a really, really thin kind of a foil 
and used for decorative purposes. The other thing about metals, which I had on that slide, and I'm going to show you now, is that they're very good conductors. So does anyone want to sort of volunteer what conduction or a conductor means in this regard? Right. So it basically a conductor co conducts electricity. It allows for the free flow of electrons. So in this metal lattice here that you see, electrons are free flowing and they form a sort of an electron cloud or decentralized, delocalized electrons that can flow across and to any part of the metal very easily. And that's why we use conductive metal wires to conduct electricity, to flow current through it because these electrons aren't restricted as in, in the covalent and ionic bonding situations. So we call this model of how metals bond, we call this the electron C model for obvious reasons. It is like this big giant communal C of electrons shared between all the atomic nuclei. Uh, they can move around easily, they can move around very freely and this kind of gives you some interesting perspectives, interesting things happening when you get interaction with light. Recall that a photon can excite an electron to a higher energy level, make it jump up between orbitals, and then at the same time that electron, when it's falling down between orbitals, will emit a photon of a certain color. So particularly in metals where we have this C effect, we have the absorption and reflection happening as well, but we also have something else. We have this, if there's enough incident light of a high enough energy on the metal, the metal itself will emit light. The metal actually can emit electrons, and this is due to something called the photoelectric effect. So you may have heard of the photoelectric effect because its discoverer was Einstein, none other than Albert Einstein, <clears throat> and he actually won the Nobel Prize for this. So the photoelectric effect tells us that if you add enough energy, let's say to a piece of metal, to a sheet of metal, you have enough external energy coming into the system that the electron can absorb this energy and be liberated from the metal. So the electron basically pops out of the metal into the vacuum. That doesn't happen all the time. Think about a sheet of metal and you're shining a red light on it. If you think about the wavelength of red light, it's a longer wavelength. It's a lower energy. So the red light shone on the metal may not have enough energy to liberate one of those electrons. It depends on the metal. But if you had something like a blue light or a UV light source, that energy is much higher, the wavelength is much shorter, you could have a liberation of the electron. And for, again, for obvious reasons, electron once liberated from the metal into the vacuum is known as a free electron. And this is what, it, what you could imagine it looking like. At the bottom, we have this metal 
with electrons, the electron C floating around in it. What's happening is photons, remember, wave or particle. So photons are coming in. This is an external energy input into the system. Recall one important thing, which is the conservation of energy. So if we have external energy being put into the system, that energy has to interact with the system somehow and cause some sort of change. And the change it causes is by the electrons basically of getting that energy and popping out of the metal here. So I am not going to ask you to calculate any more things after the first assignment, but it may not surprise you to uh, know that just like we calculated energy levels for, for photons and how we could anticipate what wavelength of photon would be emitted in a certain interaction, we can also calculate the amount of energy we need to liberate an electron from a metal. Uh, and this is done using um, the work function, something called the work function, which is very different for each metal. And there is a formula for it, but we're not going to get into that. Main thing is that you understand, basically, again, do not memorize this. This will not be tested. This is just to show you the different values of some work functions and how easily different metals will give up that electron. You'll notice here, too, the units, EV, right, electron volts. So we calculated in the first assignment, you were asked to convert your answer to electron volts. Electron volts is a very um, convenient unit to use, and we also unit use it when calculating not only a photon's sort of energy jumps and wavelengths, but things like the work function. How can you free the electron from the metal? So something like zinc has 3.1 electron volts, takes 3.1 electron volts to free zinc, which isn't too bad, but then something like nickel takes a lot more energy to free the electron in that. Um, well, that's, that's part of it, but it, it's kind of, it's also because, okay. so the question was, why does a metal feel colder at room temperature? And part of it, it's not so much the work function, but that, that's true, that you, if you lose the electron, you're losing energy and you're losing heat, but it's also because of the reflection properties of the metal. A reflection tends to, a metal will reflect almost everything that you send at it. So a metal is very much like a mirror. If you think about a mirror, and in fact, mirrors are just glass coated with aluminum, right? So what's happening is the way that the internal structure of the metal reflects and refracts the light incident upon it has to do a little bit with the temperature. Well, when you touch it, it'll become warm. So that's, but that's the transfer, that's external input, that's heat from your hand being used to warm up the metal. And that's a different, entirely different form of energy input. That's a good question. Okay. All right. So what am I getting at with all of this lead up saying that we talked about molecules and now we're talking about atoms and we're talking about atoms in different ways 
behaving in different ways in metal. Well, let's talk now about atomic patterns. So before we had molecules and combination of molecules. Now that we're moving into metals, minerals, and gems, one key difference, I mean, part of the key difference, and again, going back to your question about temperature, is the structure of how metals, minerals, and gems are basically created. At the microscopic level, when you have any metal or any um, mineral, specifically when I'm talking about minerals and I say gems, gem is just a mineral that has been extracted and polished and cut in a certain way to take that mineral out. So gemstones, minerals, they're not quite the same thing, but they're the same substance, and one is the polished form of the substance. So in terms of atomic patterns, they all have these lattice patterns. What I mean by a lattice is, as you can see in these pictures, a framework. So these probably seem familiar to you. You probably had to uh, build at some point um, in high school or elementary school the platonic solids. You put all these toothpicks with styrofoam balls together. This is a lattice. It's basically a matrix of some form. And metals and minerals are always in the atoms in metals and minerals are uniquely in these patterns that are lattices. So in terms of what a lattice is, it contains groups of atoms in one shape. And it's kind of a base shape. You can think of it as a building block that repeats regularly. So that base shape can be something like a cube or a pyramid, just different. You can think of it as Lego blocks, different sort of building shapes to form the entire lattice. A crystal lattice or a crystalline lattice, again, has very important and unique properties. But when we're talking about metals and minerals, we'll be talking about a crystal lattice structure of these things. So we're no longer talking about, as before, groups of molecules bound together in sort of a plane. We're talking about a three-dimensional crystal lattice. So in terms of minerals and gems, I just said this, but just to redefine what a mineral is, a mineral is a naturally occurring inorganic, meaning not alive, uh, chemical compound of a crystalline structure. And a gem, of course, is the same thing. It's just a piece of this mineral that has been cut and polished. So in this picture, here's the mineral, and here's the gem. So what makes minerals and gems so different is, again, this crystalline structure. Think of something like diamond. Diamond is, as you probably everybody knows, it's one of the hardest materials, and it's made out of carbon. So what makes it so special that you just have this element carbon? It's how the carbon is put together in this lattice formation. So a diamond basically is a structure of lattice carbon atoms with this sea of shared electrons in this three-dimensional pattern. 
So, so what's the big deal about that? Well, a very big deal is some of the properties this crystal structure gives. This is graphite, which is in your pencil, made of carbon. And in terms of if you look at the structure, this is just all carbon. Looking at the structure, this is one of the structures we discussed before. These are molecules put together in certain ways, but not in three-dimensional ways. So a graphite sheet, or when you were to, let's say, draw a sketch mark with your graphite pencil across the paper, the structure would look something like this. It'll be these molecules bonded together in a plane. And you can stack these by shading on top of each other. The difference, the only difference really between this graphite being made from carbon and this diamond is the structure. Here's a planar structure and here is a three-dimensional structure of the carbon atoms linked together in a crystal lattice. So it has a number of effects like increasing, for instance, the substance's hardness. So let's take a look at about a six or so, six, seven minute video about how diamonds are formed. And then we will probably have the break. This is from a longer segment of a 52 minute uh, Nova Diamonds series. are forced to Earth's surface in a very special kind of volcanic eruption. The rock inside traveled hundreds of miles through Earth's mantle at up to 30 miles an hour. The diamond just comes along for the ride. Raw diamond crystals can be seen still embedded in this rock, known as kimberlite. The diamond was just an accidental passenger en route to the surface of the Earth. These eruptions leave behind very deep funnels of kimberlite and diamond which is why mining diamonds takes a severe toll on the landscape and at times an even bigger toll on humans. In places like Sierra Leone, Africa, uncontrolled mining has led to horrific conditions for the miners. The diamonds they find can head straight for a black market that have funded warlords and weapons in brutal civil wars. These are the so-called blood diamonds. Diamonds that are legally exported are subject to strict controls and sent to just a handful of diamond centers worldwide. 90% of America's diamonds pass through one city, New York, famous for its hustle bustle and bling. This is 47th Street, the diamond district where trader Ronnie Vanderman is one of its many unofficial mayors. Welcome to 47th Street, land of everything. But what this street is really known for, what it's about, is its magnificent diamonds. I like the chisel. I like it all. Today, he has a little business with Gregory Gisari. Gregory. Hey, Ronnie, how are you? How are you, buddy? It's great. Do you understand? Yeah negotiating the sale of a quarter of a million dollar square-shaped diamond. I think this might be the one. A key step to make a diamond worth that kind of money is the cut. 
which reveals the sparkling beauty of the stone. Michael Kaufman is a master diamond cutter. I've been in the business since 1966. I started off as an apprentice diamond cutter. I was a baby, literally a baby. Today, he's repairing a chipped diamond. While diamonds are the hardest material on earth, they aren't very tough. Which means if you strike it at just the right angle, between the planes of carbon atoms, it will break. This line of weakness is called the cleavage grain. I'm going to look for the grain of the stone. People don't realize that diamond has grain just like wood has grain. If you take this entire building and put it on top of this diamond in the street, it will make a hole in the street. But yet, if you hit it on the cleaving grain, it will take off a small piece. Sometimes not so small. That grain is also key to transforming the rough rock into a shimmering, faceted gem. When the job is done, and all the facets are where they should be, and I see the brilliance, I see that stone talk to me. And it says, Michael, did a good job. Revealing a diamond's beauty comes down to the careful arrangement of these facets. Diamonds need to be cut in very, very specific parameters to get it to maximize light return. This is the round, brilliant cut, one of the most popular shapes in the world. When a diamond is proportioned in a perfect way, it will act as a hall of mirrors. If it's not, then the light will push out of the back and you'll basically lose light. In 1919, a Belgian mathematician named Marcel Tolkowski used principles of optical physics and math to determine the optimum number and angle of facets to create a diamond that perfectly caught the light. When he came along, it was more putting a science to the actual proportions and understanding that they matter. Imagine this is an uncut crystal with a smooth surface on it. And now we're going to shine green light onto it. Debbie Berabishi, a physicist, explains how light can be captured in a crystal by using a green laser so our camera can see it. So we see that spot on the wall because most of the light is getting transmitted to the other side. Now if instead we use a faceted crystal, we can see how most of the light is getting trapped and bouncing around inside the crystal. And a lot of it is coming back reflected into our eyes, very much like a hall of mirrors. Tolkowski found that a diamond cut with nearly 60 carefully angled facets created an exquisite geometry that reflected light around the stone many times, then bounced it out through the top and into our eyes. We call this phenomenon brilliance. When white light enters a diamond at just the right angle, something extraordinary happens. These facets, along with how the diamond affects wavelengths of light, disperse it into a rainbow of colors, like light through a prism. This creates the flashes of color called fire. Because of diamond's hardness, the polishing of the facets creates such incredible mirrors that the diamond bounces the light back to the eye. 
So you're really getting a combination of light to give this beautiful dispersion and sparkle. It turns out that a diamond's brilliant sparkle comes down to optical physics, something truly to sing about. As Marilyn Monroe did in this 1953 classic, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. In Washington, D.C., there is a very special diamond that Marilyn Monroe would surely have loved to get her hands on. 6 a.m. Inside the Smithsonian's Museum of Natural History, the Gem Gallery is on lockdown. Curator of Gems Jeffrey Post is removing the museum's most infamous and most visited exhibit from its bulletproof case. What I'm holding right now is probably the world's most famous diamond. This is the Hope Diamond. It is a large blue diamond, 45 and a half carats, the largest, finest blue diamond that we know of anywhere in the world. Post says it is impossible to estimate the diamond's value, in part because of its long history of intrigue. It was bought in the 17th century by Jean-Baptiste Tavernier and sold to King Louis XIV of France. It is believed that during the French Revolution, the diamond was smuggled to London, recut, then purchased by the Hope family, where it got its name. But only after it was sold to the American socialite Evelyn Walsh McLean, whose family was soon struck by a series of tragedies, did the diamond earn its famed reputation of being cursed. So finally... I'm going to, it was, I'm going to stop it there. And he was going to say it, it was donated to the Smithsonian. And now it is on display at the Smithsonian. Um, but you recall from our earlier slides that different kinds of, <coughs> excuse me, different colors of diamonds also have to do with the number of double bonds in the particular diamond and also to do with impurities. So we're going to see that next and see which impurities cause which colors in all of your favorite gemstones. So going to pause there for a break and right now it's 9.33 so if we come back at 9.55. So I'm going to get started again. And uh, one of your classmates had mentioned to me that uh, people are wondering when this drop date is. And I believe currently on a, either the York website or just some website or in the face group, Facebook group for the course, um, a notice has been posted saying March 10 is the extended deadline date. Uh, I don't believe this is true. Um, I will let you know as soon as I know what the extended deadline date is, but if you take a look at this recent communication from March 12th, this is a communication from Senate, it basically confirms that um, there will be modifications to the academic schedule and the uh, deadline date has been extended with details coming out shortly. So they haven't, um, they haven't actually set this yet. Um, 
Okay, and then again, what all they're saying as well is that depending on how long the strike goes on, the options for course continuation and different things will be adjusted accordingly. So I will try and keep up to date, and as soon as I know anything, I'll let you know. But um, just in case you were wondering about whatever March 10 information was out there, March 10 is not the drop date for the course. The extension hasn't been uh, yet announced. Okay. So then moving on with our study of minerals and metals and gemstones, we learned about uh, diamonds, and we've saw, seen in all of these videos, with the exception of the Hope Diamond at the end, which was a blue diamond, the diamonds were colorless. Let's look at some of the gemstones which show some rich and varied colors and see what causes these particular colors. So if you remember back to the very start of the course where I said you'll learn about 15 causes of colors, those 15 causes of color come from the Kurt Nassau article in Scientific American that you can see it's referenced on our reference links in the Moodle pages. But in terms of minerals and gemstones, of those 15 causes of color, there are about five of them that apply to minerals and gemstones. And they are, to start with, something called band gap process or processes. The second one is, is what you'd expect, given what we've discussed so far. So those are metallic impurities, impurities within the gemstone itself, a very small amount of another substance being present, which colorizes the gemstone. I've lumped together in this case two as one. So impurities is one thing, and compounds is another thing. So impurities is a very, very, very small amount being another substance. A compound is a mixture of substances that comprise the whole material itself. So in terms of metallic compounds, all of these different compounds together make up the gem and give it its different color. We'll talk about that in a moment. One of the things mentioned in the video was the importance of physical optics to the brightness or the luminance of whatever gem you get. So the I think it was a gemologist in the video who said that depending on how you cut the stone, you can have something that's really brilliant and has a lot of fire in it, sort of the light leaps out at you, or you can have something that's really dull and boring to look at and the light basically goes out the back of it, so it's not reflected into your eye. That's one aspect of physical optics, and there are some others that we're going to discuss. The fourth mechanism is called charge transfer. And like the name sounds, it is when you have two atoms that have a sort of a different kind of a charge on each, different polarity, so one is positive, one is slightly negative, and the electrons jump between the atoms. And then the last one is really an interesting one. And you'll see this if you look at that article, NASA's article about the causes of color. You'll see color centers, and you'll see some very complex diagrams 
which show you what color centers are. But color centers are basically little holes in the microscopic structure of the mineral that allow other things like electrons to come into that hole and occupy it with a certain color. And that gives you your, your color overall of this mineral. So we'll see examples of each kind. Let's start by talking about the band gap processes. So the band gap causes color in materials like what we were discussing, like diamonds. Now thinking back to color and photons and all of the mechanisms we've talked about so far, when we had molecules or combinations of atoms, we talked about a nucleus and shells that the electrons would orbit around the nucleus. So there are a number of different shells that electrons occupy orbits of, and each of them has a certain capacity. So basically, the shells at a certain level can hold a maximum number of electrons, and they like to hold that maximum number of electrons in order to be stable. Does anybody remember what the outermost shell was called? Or the electrons in the outermost shell? Yep, valence, valence electrons. So these are the outermost shell, and these tell you how many ways an atom can bond with another atom. Different here than valence electrons, we're talking about something else. We're talking about band gaps. It's a similar idea, though. So a band gap is how what we would normally call this outer valence shell how far it is from other possible configurations. Think of it like a band, which is exactly, if you have a nucleus here, and you have a number of orbital shells, and let's say you had one very, very close in. It is essentially the gaps in these bands that we're talking about here. So there'll be different levels, like a staircase. There'll be different energy levels between these bands. And electrons jumping up or falling down from one band to another band in minerals can give them color. Let's see some examples of that. So here's another way that we can conceptualize it. Typically in metals we talk about conduction because we recall that it's not like the orbitals where we had one atom interacting with another atom where it had a covalent bond and would share kind of one outer valence shell. Here we have a sea of electrons like in the metals. The sea can freely flow and move. And so there are rough bands or areas where the electrons tend to congregate. And as you look at this, the bands basically have certain concentrations, certain numbers of electrons likely to be in them. So the band gaps have to do again with how electrons behave when they're jumping between the gaps different than the individual atoms. 
So in terms of metals and semiconductors, which are metals, which are materials that basically conduct electricity, but not as, as clearly as, as um, metals. We have diamond, where you've got impurities present, and you've also got this, these impurities which are subject to different band gaps and different behavior, because each material has its own characteristic set of levels. Let's see a more clear, hopefully, illustration. This diagram is showing you how some materials, uh, typically we can imagine how band gaps work by looking, examining the characteristics of the periodic table, which is sort of like the universal catalog for telling us chemical properties of any particular material. So in this particular version, we have multitudes of atoms here in close proximity. So when you have the layers becoming blurred, you have a certain number of electrons in this layer and a, a huge amount of electrons in this layer. Electrons start to be able to easily jump from one layer to another without a huge amount of energy being required. And when they jump, it's the same kind of thing that we talked about with photons before. Certain colors are associated with certain energy level jumps. In terms of shininess of metals, band gaps and band gap effects are why metals have this, this inherent shininess, basically. Metals are shiny for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that they really, as you saw in the video, a crystalline structure will trap and reflect light. It disperses light in many different ways. A metal will often reflect and refract the light directly back to you. But another reason that they're so shiny is, again, this sort of production of light. And what you have here is an electron jumps between band gaps. When it falls down from the higher energy band gap to a lower energy band gap, the light gets re-emitted quickly. The photon is emitted, just like the case of where you had a photon in a higher orbital, an electron collapsing down to a lower orbital and having the photon released at a certain color. Same thing here. Band gap transition, higher band to lower energy band, photon is produced and the photon has a certain color. And that color, these changes with band gaps, is what gives us this shininess of metals. Uh, and specifically what gives the metals that I showed you in the beginning of the lecture, the um, green-looking metal, the gold metal, which was yellowy, silver, this is what gives them their shades. So for gold and copper, the wavelengths that get absorbed when the jumping up of bands happened and then re-emitted are in the orangey-red. So gold has its color because of band gap effects, that when certain wavelengths are absorbed, everything but, in other words, the orange and red, orange and yellow, you basically have this spectrum that gives them their distinct colors. Here's an example of some semiconductors. 
because semiconductors have only small band gaps between their different sort of electron levels, only a small variety of certain colors can be produced by semiconductors. Remember, it's because you can think of the energy in this sense as being quantized. Only certain energy transitions are possible, and you get these sort of browny, orangey, yellow colors. So in terms of something we talked about earlier, Curious, what do you think? Can the same type of gemstone be different colors? looks like this was a very obvious one but the answer is yes a gemstone can be uh, one type of gemstone can be different colors and you've already seen that with the prime example being a diamond which you know can be clear it can be blue like the hope diamond it can also be yellow there's actually red diamonds and pink diamonds as well which are far more rare but these sort of color aberrations do happen So let's take a look at, at why that is. And probably something that you are thinking already is it's probably because of impurities. So here's your blue diamond, your yellow diamond, and your clear diamond. And the blue, yellow, and clear colors, the clear color is a result of a pure diamond. No impurities, essentially. The blue color and the yellow colors are a result of small amounts, let's say 1% or so, of trace metallic elements in your diamond. So things like nitrogen and things like boron give you these different kinds of colors and create different color effects. Particularly with each different kind of material that you see, each mineral, just like in each atom of any element, the energy levels are different for electrons. The band gaps in all minerals are different. Diamond specifically has a very distinct and large outer gap in the electron bands. And it's a lot of these transitions that happen in this outer band that determine what color the diamond will be. So basically, the electrons are jumping here between specific levels, and they're producing these colors that you see. So in terms of impurities and compounds, I said I was lumping two together. I'd like to make a, a, a distinction again. So impurities are a very small trace amount of some sort of metallic substance in the mineral. So 1% or so. There are other compounds, compound being a mixture of multiple elements. There are other compounds that are basically comprised totally of these different sort of elements, these different mixtures. These are the compounds. Both the impurity and a compound 
and its composition will give you a color. To clarify that, let's talk a little bit more about impurities and I'll show you the difference. So particularly in a number of minerals, the only difference between say a ruby and an emerald is the presence of basically of, of, a, of an impurity. And we'll see that later on. So in some of the stones, you have less more than 1% of trace elements. You have a significant amount of element, other elements making up that stone, which is your compound. This probably isn't making a lot of sense now, but it will in later slides as I start to talk about idiochromatic and allochromatic minerals. So if you think about an idiochromatic mineral is a mineral that is self-colored. In other words, if you have a mineral that's a mixture of you know, substance one and substance two, that's the whole 100% of the mineral. If it's 50% substance one, 50% substance two, it derives its color from the combination of these two minerals, materials equally. It's a compound and therefore it's self-colored. So idiochromatic just means self-colored. It's the components of the mixture that determine the mixture's color. There's another kind of coloration, which is called allochromatic coloration in minerals. And this is when you have these impurities or these sort of trace elements where the situation is like this. You have a big chunk of, let's say, diamond, and you have a very tiny little impurity. That's the thing, that's the other, but this is, the, is which basically determines the color. So the color is determined by the other, the thing that mainly does not compose the material. So allochromatic means other determined color. That's from impurity. Without the, the presence of both allochromatic and idiochromatic minerals, most of the minerals that we see would be transparent. So impurities in this case are a wonderful thing. <coughs> One of the amazing things about impurities is when you think back to that structure, the crystalline structure of um, a mineral, it only takes one small unit or one small building block of that crystalline structure to be removed and have an impurity inserted in it for the whole color of the mineral to change. So if you had cubic sort of square building blocks, you take out one, insert a trace metallic element, changes the whole color of the entire sample. And this is what actually happens in things like rubies. So rubies are uh, aluminum oxides, or there's a, they're a stone called corundum, and corundum is colorless in its natural form. So when you take corundum and you replace one of those crystal matrix units of the corundum with, say, chromium, chromium colors the whole sample entirely red, and you get a beautiful ruby.
So if there was no chromium present, you'd get this colorless uh, corundrum. And in terms of other kinds of stones, different impurities inserted into their crystal lattice will cause different colors and different results. Another kind of, of um, corundum that we know as sapphires, they, they have a beautiful blue color. You replace one of the units of the corundum matrix with, um, I believe it's uh, titanium, and then you get a beautiful sort of blue sapphire color a lot of the time. Sapphires are not only blue though, they come in a lot of other different shades. And um, a lot of those really, really, really deep blue colors come from another mechanism, which we're going to see. Other thing of note is that if you heat gems up, if you heat up minerals, just like any other kind of matter, heat it up, it gets more energy. And it actually makes it easier for electrons to pop out of it when you heat materials up. So if you heat things up, this changes the color often. Okay, here's another, another mineral. It's called beryl. And all of these beryl samples have the same crystal lattice structure. The only difference between all of these is the small trace additive or impurity that's in there. So basically you can see that aquamarine, morganite, and even emeralds are just beryl with some sort of ion added in to that matrix. Again, to show you about heating things, green beryl particularly has a mix of, of iron ions. And basically, when you heat it, the color changes to this blue or this aquamarine. So that's an example of how the heat changes the color. Okay, so this is a fairly, should be fairly straightforward one. So we talked about corundum. Does chromium put in corundum or in any other gemstone always cause that particular gemstone to be red? got another overwhelming winner emerging. So I'm going to stop this. And yes, this is the case. Uh, chromium does not always um, make the gemstones red. Let's see an example. just before this particular example, just to go over the allochromatic versus idiochromatic again. Allochromatic means other color. So it's colored by that small impurity. Whereas the idiochromatic means self-colored. And to show you some examples of what these things look like, an allochromatic mineral is a mil mineral that gets its colors from the trace amounts of its impurities. And some examples of these are tourmaline, 
and citron. So tourmaline can be a number of different colors. This particular uh, sample, this stone that I'm showing you here of tourmaline is called a watermelon tourmaline. The outside is kind of green and the inside is pink. And citron typically is a yellow stone that looks like that. When we talk about idiochromatic or self-colored compounds, it's because the metallic compounds composing those particular materials inform the color of the whole thing. So it's a compound that's a mixture of metals and is colored based on the constituent colors of those metals in it. So example of those are some striking some pretty striking minerals uh, and gemstones, turquoise and malachite, which is a vivid green kind of opaque looking gemstone as you see in all of these layers of a close-up of a malachite sample. Okay. So we talked about chromium and giving red. Let's look at the same impurity that gives us actually different color gems. So you're seeing, particularly here, you see a ruby, and here you see an emerald. So there is a difference between them, and the important difference is that you can have the same impurity embedded in a different crystalline matrix, which will give you a totally different gem. So corundum with chromium becomes red, it's ruby, Whereas beryl with chromium, the same additive, the same impurity, is green. And you have an emerald. So one thing to talk about as well is the physical optics of minerals as a coloring agent for them. So previously in the video, we showed physical optical effects being the cut of the diamond. And you saw the mathematician who basically figured out a formula that would extract the most light out of a diamond, which showed you that it needed to be cut in a certain way with about 60 different faces to have light optimally reflect back into our eyes. So over the years of experimentation and uh, gem cutters and diamond cutters, these are a number of popular cuts for diamonds that you will see and probably recognize if you've been looking for an engagement ring or something, you'll always see all of these different shapes named. And one would be like more desirable than the other because it has greater fire or greater light reflected back into your eyes in kind of sparks. Okay. That's one aspect of physical optics. It's the shape and the sheen of how the mineral is polished and faceted. And another thing that is a physical optical property is something that relates to the interference of light waves. It's color from interference. Now we haven't talked about this yet, but we are going to get into this next week when we talk about thin film interference and interference of when you see beautiful colors like oil slicks almost in soap bubbles. This is all a result of the interference of light waves. Light waves basically interacting with each other, producing areas of light and areas of dark and areas of different colors. So this is just to give you a heads up, but we'll be discussing 
the interference of light waves and all of the associated color phenomena in our next lectures. Charge transfer is the third mechanism that is a coloring agent. And I don't want to go too much into detail about this because it does, the mechanics of it does get extremely complicated and into very advanced chemistry. So the, it's enough for us to know that this mechanism exists and to say that the charge transfer happens partially because of impurities or elements that are in the minerals. But basically what's happening is the different elements contained within the minerals have different charges. They have different net charges and they start swapping electrons. And this can give rise to, to different areas of, of color. So again, we're talking yet again about movement of electrons in terms of charge transfer. And if you really think about it, all of the causes that we've talked about with color so far all have to do with movement of electrons in some way. So typically, in terms of charge transfer, uh, there, there are a lot of elements that are typically involved. So iron, titanium, and manganese are typical charge transfer elements. And you can also have a mixture of any of these three elements that will lead to charge transfer reactions. So electrons jumping about and switching from element to element. Typically with charge transfer, Here's how you get into the production of blues a little bit. Charge transfers often create incredibly intense colors. And you can just think of the intense dark blue in a lapis lazuli stone. Lapis lazuli is a result of charge transfer, electrons jumping around between one element to another. Another blue also produced by charge transfer, is a blue from sapphires. Not all sapphires, but some sapphires with that really, really rich dark blue are produced. The blue is produced as a result of charge transfer. Electrons moving and changing in different elements. So what's happening in this picture is the energy required to transfer the electrons gets absorbed by the substance, the electrons absorb it, they then have a boost in energy, they're able to transfer it, they jump from one atom to another, and in this case, they allow us to see the remaining wavelengths. So if you absorb everything but the blue wavelength, the electron jumps, and what is reflected back to your eye is the blue wavelength that you see in the sapphire. Color centers, this is number, number four, is basically the color of charge of uh, how to produce colors in gems are color centers. One of my favorites and probably a really a beautiful example of color centers giving color to minerals are amethyst, the beautiful large crystal of amethyst. So that deep purple color or light purple as the case may be with different samples of amethyst comes from a discrepancy or a sort of a, a hole in the molecular structure. An electron jumps in 
That electron's energy basically corresponds to a purple color, and that purple is the purple that you see. So what's happening is there's damage initially to your crystal structure. The hole sits there, and if you think about molecules and atoms, remember that they have net charges. We talked about polarized molecules, and we talked about certain atoms that are more electronegative or less electronegative than others. If you have a hole in this crystal matrix, you have a net charge surrounding the hole. Often you'll have a net positive charge and it's a trap because it pulls in electrons to sit in and fill that hole, basically. So it is an electron trap. The energy of the electron gets absorbed by the trap and is translated to us as the color of the particular mineral. It gets more complicated than this because, you know, single crystals often have different energy levels. So you can have a series of traps, not just one hole, but many different traps or color centers in one sample that trap different electrons of different energy and get different kind of color samples all over the place in one particular mineral. Because you'll, you'll often see that amethyst are various shades of purple. If you notice that, there's sometimes very light purples in one part and very dark purple. Part of this is a result of how the crystal has these different energy levels or different traps which absorb slightly different energetically structured electrons. Okay, to, let's conceptualize this. Let's take a look at what this might look like. So in a simple diagram, here is our crystalline matrix of our initial mineral. Something is removed, one building block here, one fluorite um, ion is removed, leaving a hole. The calcium has a net positive charge, which attracts the electron down to fill the hole and have a neutral charge overall, so it wants to basically stay there. And whatever energy of this electron is present is going to infuse sort of color into that particular mineral. So we see purple here. And here's an example. You can see this is fluorite, these particular ions. These are fluorite um, standing, uh, standing points or standing stones. A lot of people have them. You'll see them in gem stores. You'll see a lot of crystals, sort of standing point crystals. Um, this one here shows you really nicely the original fluorite undamaged is completely clear. And in the areas where you have this sort of linear vein of purple, what's happening there is the crystal structure was damaged in that area, allowing these little holes to open up, which allowed electrons to come in and fill it with that purple color. In terms of production, I've already told you that uh, amethyst, which is a form of quartz, lots of quartz crystals are colored by the presence of color centers. Uh, so fluorite, topaz, which is a kind of a usually light blue stone, all of these minerals are example of having these holes. And without the holes, basically as you saw with the fluorite before, 
the element would be totally colorless. And certainly, probably to us, not nearly as beautiful. So the imperfections really are giving us our beauty and our color in this sense. In fact, we capitalize upon this because we can actually create artificial color centers. So we, we would damage the mineral and basically create artificial color centers to fill with sort of colors of the type that um, are desired. But again, you can't just put any color in there based on the composition of the lattice. Certain energies of electrons would be able to fit into that hole. So you'd still ha be limited to a certain range of colors, but you could put potentially a nice range of different colors artificially into a mineral. You can also damage these minerals. You can use high energy beams, basically high energy light waves. You can use gamma rays and you can use x-rays and create these, bore these mini little holes into minerals and create synthetic, synthetically colored minerals. And you can also do this by exposing it, the mineral to heat or other kinds of radiation. So what about, we know that the shininess of something in a piece of jewelry, of a gem in a jewelry, piece of jewelry is usually because of the cut and the polish, because of how it refracts and reflects that light into your eye. What about stones, gemstones, when you see examples like this, with these striations or linear light patterns? How does that form? What is that? Well, this is an example of a ruby, and this particular ruby is um, with the Hope Diamond, not in the same room, but with the Hope Diamond at the Smithsonian. I think it was donated in 1965. But this pattern of light that you see, which kind of looks like an asterisk, unsurprisingly, is called asterism. So light behaves in this way, basically due to this property, asterism. And there are a number of different properties like asterism, sort of behaviors of light in a gemstone or a mineral that arise. There are too many for you to memorize and know for the course. And so I'm not going to test you on that kind of thing, but just as a matter of interest, I'll show you uh, to close a quick um, a video, which is about, sorry, it's about nine minutes, not so quick, nine minute video, which shows you examples of different kinds of gem and talks about things like asterism and all of the things that we've sort of talked about with a few added. So you do not have to memorize this content in this video. This is just for your information and to clarify what we talked about.
People value gemstones for all sorts of reasons. They're usually rare, pretty durable, and most of all, they're shiny and sparkly. They can have multiple colors, streaks of light, weird inside-out shapes, and all kinds of other qualities. The things we consider gemstones are often made of minerals arranged into different types of crystals, although a few are made of molecules that are arranged totally randomly. But either way, their properties come from their specific chemical structure. At the atomic level, it's simple geometry, but it leads to some of the most beautiful natural materials on Earth. When you look at a gemstone, probably the first thing you notice is its color. Some gems, like tourmaline and fluorite, can come in practically any color you can think of. And often, those colors come from transition metals that are incorporated into the mineral's crystal structure. Metals like copper, iron, and zinc. The transition metals are the metals in the middle part of the periodic table. Those elements tend to take on bright colors because the way their electrons are arranged lets them absorb visible light with certain wavelengths. With those wavelengths gone, we see a complementary color. Sometimes, a specific metal is an inherent part of a mineral structure, so the mineral always takes on that color. Malachite, for example, has copper in its chemical structure, which turns it green. Other times, the metals aren't an inherent part of the mineral. Instead, they're sort of hitchhiking in its crystal structure, occasionally taking the place of whatever element would normally be there. Ruby and sapphire, for example, are actually the same mineral called corundum, with a chemical formula of two aluminums and three oxygens. When some iron and titanium atoms replace a few of the aluminums, the mineral is a brilliant blue, and that's what we call sapphire. But when the hitchhiking atoms are chromium instead, the mineral turns red, and you have a ruby. But there's more to this color thing, because gems aren't always just one color. Some look like they change color when you view them from different angles, an effect that's known as pleacroism. See, crystals are made up of atoms arranged in repeating patterns. The patterns form blocks called unit cells, which can be different shapes, like cubes or pyramids. Geologists classify crystals by assigning three axes to the unit cell. Depending on whether those axes are at right angles to each other and whether or not they're the same length, crystals will have different shapes and properties. It's kind of like the difference between building a tower with cube-shaped blocks and building one with pyramid-shaped blocks. They're going to be different. If the axes are all the same length and at right angles to each other, like in a cubic unit cell, nothing very interesting happens to the light passing through the crystal. When the axes are different, the light can get split into multiple paths as it travels through the crystal. Different paths might absorb more of different colors of light. So, for example, light traveling along one path might seem more green, and along another, it might look more brown. And when you rotate the crystal, you change the path the light takes. So pleochroic crystals seem to change color as you move your head or rotate them in your hand. Depending on their exact geometry, you can get either two or three different colors. Not all non-cubic gems are pleochroic, but even when they are, the color change isn't always noticeable to our eyes. But it's a pretty common property. Sapphire, for instance, is often pleochroic. So is topaz. It's just light interacting with atomic geometry, but it looks awesome. Then there are gems that are attracted or repelled by a magnetic field. You can't just walk up to your refrigerator and stick a garnet to it or anything, but strong magnets will attract certain kinds of gems. In fact, the same transition metals that give gems their color can make them drawn to magnets. Often the metal responsible is iron, but rare earth elements like neodymium can do it too. Those trace elements make the mineral magnetic because they have odd numbers of electrons. Electrons have a property called spin, and two electrons with opposite spins pair up and cancel out. But when an electron isn't paired, its spin goes uncancelled and it's free to be attracted by a passing magnetic field. That's called paramagnetism. On the other hand, a material with all its electrons paired up is slightly repelled by a magnetic field, because when the electrons move around in an atom, they make magnetic fields of their own, which repel other magnets. That's diamagnetism. Bismuth, for instance, is diamagnetic, so it's always repelled by a magnet. When unpaired electron spins line up parallel to each other, you get ferromagnetism, or a mineral that's actually a magnet. Very few minerals are ferromagnetic, but hematite is one example. Sometimes, a gem that's normally repelled by magnets will have bits of iron inside it, which will make it attracted to magnets instead. So magnetism isn't a perfect tool for figuring out what a gem is made of, but it's often a helpful clue. Sometimes you'll see gems cut into fat 
facets, but other times they'll be polished into a round shape called a cabochon. And sometimes a round polished gem will look like it has a bright streak of light across its surface, like the vertical pupil in a cat's eye. It's called chatoyance, and it happens because of little thread-like pieces of a mineral, like rutile, inside a gem, what scientists call silk. As these crystals form, the impurities are forced to line up along the axes of the crystal structure, so the pieces of mineral end up parallel to each other. Those parallel pieces reflect light in a way that creates a bright line perpendicular to the threads. And it's not just gems that do this. A spool of silk thread will do the same thing, where there's a streak of light perpendicular to the wound up thread. But unlike a spool of thread, gems can have inclusions going in different directions based on the crystal structure of the mineral. That creates a streak of light perpendicular to each axis, which looks like a star with four, six, or even more points. The star effect is called an asterism. When a gem has these threads, cutting it into facets might make it look kind of muddy, but when it's polished into a round shape, you get gorgeous streaks of light. Polymorphic minerals don't always have the same structure. Even if they have the same chemical composition, the temperature and pressure when they form can lead to different shapes. Carbon is probably the most famous example of this. Depending on how its atoms are arranged, carbon can form soft, slippery graphite, or basically indestructible diamond. Silica, the mineral that makes up sand and quartz, also has lots of different polymorphs. Its molecular formula is always the same. One silicon atom and two oxygen atoms. Its molecules form tetrahedral shapes. That's a triangular pyramid, or D4 if you're into tabletop RPGs. Tetrahedrons can stack into different shapes as changes in temperature and pressure jiggle them around. At the temperatures and pressures humans find comfortable, silica makes the alpha, or so-called low, form of quartz. But as temperature and pressure increase, it can become things like cristobalite, which is found in lava flows, or stichovite, which is in meteorite craters. Even a single polymorph of silica can take on a huge variety of forms. Alpha quartz can look like scepters, rounded pebbles, or clusters of needles. It all depends on the growth conditions, like how fast the crystals form, how much space is available, and how much material there is to make crystals. The unit cells stack together in the same way, but sometimes an impurity will cause them to take off at an angle or make them more likely to stick to one part of the crystal than another. Quartz is so varied that tons of gems like amethyst, chalcedony, agate, and citrine are all made of silica. Organic matter can be slowly replaced by minerals to become a fossil. Often, the mineral involved is kind of drab, but sometimes the conditions are just right to produce something spectacular. And in rare cases, petrified wood, shells, teeth, or even bones of extinct organisms are made of opal. Opalized fossils are most often found in Australia, along with most of the world's opal in general. One of the most famous specimens is a pliosaur nicknamed Eric, an almost complete marine reptile preserved in opal. Like quartz, opal is made of silica, but unlike quartz, it doesn't have a crystal structure. Instead, it's made of little spheres of silica all bunched together. These tiny spheres scatter light, giving opal its characteristic rainbow sheen. Geologists have a few different models for how opal might form, but it could come from silica weathering out of rocks in an acidic environment. Australia used to be partially covered by an inland sea, and as that sea dried up, it left acidic, silica-rich gel behind. Bits of silica settled into the gel and then grew into spheres that make up opal. Sometimes that gel was stuck in bones or bits of wood that had already started to fossilize, so the silica trapped in there formed opals in the shape of those organic structures. The resulting fossils have both aesthetic and scientific value, and in 1993, Eric the Pliosaur was almost made into jewelry by a broke owner looking to sell and potentially break up the pieces. But a crowdfunding campaign rescued Eric and got him a place in the Australian Museum. Hopper crystals are probably some of the strangest looking crystals. They're shaped into a weird stair-stepped hollow kind of pyramid known as a hopper. The shape comes from a quirk of chemistry as the crystal is forming. When the growth rate and saturation of the crystal forming solution is just right, new molecules will tend to be more attracted to the edges of the growing crystal than the inner flat surfaces. That makes the edges grow out of control while the flat faces stay mostly the same. So the crystals grow in a lopsided way that leads to that fascinating inside-out shape. Bismuth hopper crystals have to be grown in the lab.
lab, but hopper crystals have also been found in nature, in minerals like rose quartz. Bismuth is actually pretty easy to get your hands on and has a very low melting point, so you can actually try to make your own hopper crystals if you're feeling adventurous. Some materials that are culturally prized as gems aren't minerals or gems in the strictest geological sense. Things like amber, jet, coral, and pearl. Instead of being made up of crystals, all these materials have a more amorphous chemical structure, and they come from living things. That's why they're called amorphous organics. But the way they form makes them look a lot like classic crystal gems. Amber is fossilized tree resin and can actually preserve organisms that get stuck in it. When the tree resin gets buried in calm, wet, low oxygen environments, it slowly turns to amber. Jet is practically the same thing as coal in some ways, but while coal forms in big seams from huge amounts of plant material, jet is formed but it doesn't have a rigid crystal structure. At a microscopic level, it can actually preserve the cellular shapes of the plant it used to be. Coral is made up of small colonial animals with calcium carbonate skeletons. The skeletons are usually white, but the precious coral that's often considered a gem is a species that includes reddish-orange carotenoid pigments. Pearls contain a mixture of protein and calcium carbonate secreted by certain types of mollusks. Different species will produce different colors of pearls, and impurities in the water can also affect the color. Like all of the gems on this list, amorphous organics look the way they do because of the way their atoms are arranged. The regimented structure of a crystal and the laid-back chaos of an amorphous solid both affect the way they interact with light, magnets, and other materials. It's the sparkliest kind of geometry. Thanks for watching this episode of SciShow, which was brought to you by our patrons on Patreon. If you want to help... So that gives you uh, an overview in more detail than we're going to do of, of gemstones. And he can also talk a lot faster than me, especially this early in the morning. So that's a lot of good information. Um, that will not be tested, just to remind you. And I'm going to end off the lecture here, but just uh, quickly, one, one warning is, I do have a situation with a family member who's currently in critical care, so if things take a turn for the worse, um, I may have to cancel Friday's lecture, but I am, at this point, planning on, on giving it. So if I have to cancel, I will send out an email on Thursday, through Moodle. But in the meantime, enjoy your day and see you on Friday.